come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, please now, I pray, make us grateful for this word that you give to us. Enable us to hear it and believe it and live it and take great comfort and hope in it. I pray at the end of the day that we're encouraged knowing that you, God, have overcome every obstacle in our way that we belong to you. And that will be true for all of eternity. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to First Thessalonians and chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to begin reading with verse 17 and then take us um, through, um, well, the end of chapter 3. No, I'm sorry, just verse, just verse 5. I'll just go to verse 5. 217 through 3, 5. Hear the word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer... I sent to learn about your faith, for that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now, at a place in Paul's letter where he's laying this out for them, he's laying out for them that he desperately wants to come and to see them. We, we see that in verse 17. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers. In other words, he didn't, he didn't leave because he wanted to. He was torn away. You might remember when the church in Thessalonica was formed, there was great opposition that came both against Paul and these new believers. And Paul was forced out of the city. Perhaps his staying there would have made it worse, more difficult for the believers in the city. And so, so he left. He left abruptly. He left before he wanted to, uh, but he left. So he was torn away from them. Now he's saying he desperately wants to go back and, and see them. Notice how he puts it. He says, we're torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. In person, not in heart. In other words, I really want to be with you. It, it isn't that I don't want to be. We've torn away physically, but, but not emotionally not personally we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you he's saying he's saying i can't stand it anymore i know what's happening there and, and no matter what i can do even this letter and even timothy going won't suffice i need to see you and then he which is like this. He said, I, Paul, again and again. Uh, there's three of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, from whom this letter comes. Paul really is the author of it. He's the apostle. But, but you remember in the, in the salutation in the beginning, he says, this is from Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. But, but he's saying, no, 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 you need to get this. I want you to know 
This isn't a we here. This is a me here. I really want to see you face to face. And I've been planning it, trying over and over again, but been thwarted at every turn. Notice too in verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it you? For you are our glory and our joy. This, this Paul was the one who said he didn't boast in anything but Christ. But now he's saying that he boasts of them. That they're his joy. They're his glory. And what's he mean by that? He means I so desperately want to present you to Jesus and say, look what you've done. That's the joy. That's the thrill of my heart. And so he's saying I want desperately to come to you. Even so, he's going to send Timothy at no small risk to himself and Silas. He's willing to, willing to be left alone and send Timothy along to, to, to check up. He can't get there, but Timothy can. So he sent Timothy to them. So that's how important all of this is. So two questions. Two questions from this. And there are two questions that I think this passage answered. Now, just as an aside, it's always important to ask questions of a passage that it answers. Right? Oftentimes... We ask questions of a passage that it doesn't answer. Now, some other passage might, and we can go to that. But the danger, of course, is that we'll miss what this passage is telling us. So, so two questions. This passage answers it and will help us, I think, because as we, as we get this answer, we'll understand a great deal about the mission of the church, a great deal about living our lives as believers in Jesus. First question is this. Why didn't Paul go? Why didn't he go back? He wanted to. Paul was no coward. He, he wasn't one to, to cow in the face of opposition. Uh, he often took it literally in the face. And so, so, so why didn't he go back? Why, why, why didn't he go? And the second question is, why was he so concerned about them? Why was he so concerned about them? So concerned that he wanted to go back and he wanted to see them face to face. Two questions. Why didn't he go back? Why was he so concerned about them? Now, what makes these two questions easy is they both have the same answer. And it's a one-word answer. Satan. Notice, in verse 18, he said, I, Paul, again and again, wanted to come to see you, but Satan hindered us. He didn't go back. He said, because of Satan. And the reason he was concerned about him, notice verse 5 in chapter 3. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Why was he concerned about them? He was concerned about them for what the tempter might do. Who? The tempter. Satan. Two questions, one answer. Satan. There's no question that there's evil in the world. Uh, Read however you get your news these days. You read the news. We see evil in the world. Some of us have experienced evil to us personally. Some of us have seen evil even in and from us. 
evil exists. But it's interesting that it presents evil does kind of a conundrum to philosophers and theologians, even Christians. It goes something like this, that if a good God created a world in which he said it is very good, how could there be evil in this world? The good God is Genesis chapter 1. The good God who created the world and said it is very good. How could there be evil in this world? Now, as the Bible lays this out, in other words, as the Bible discusses evil, it isn't a conundrum. It doesn't even view it as a problem. It just lays this out to us. There is one from whom, through whom, evil enters the world. And it's through this being named Satan, created being, spiritual being, fallen angel, an angel who had sin this very one satan as he is known he's joined with other fallen angels demons who who bring into the world into us into institutions into the world evil he's known as the god of the world the ruler of the world the prince of the power of the air the one who is at work in the sun's of disobedience from this unseen world into our visible world evil comes evil is into our institutions into us it is we're responsible but yet here is the source if you will of that evil even this one Satan. It, it comes, as we read earlier from Ephesians in chapter 6, it, it comes, this ruler's authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, this Satan, he's the one over this domain of darkness. He, as the scripture says, is the original sinner. The apostle John says that he's been sinning from the beginning. And all of that. We, we don't know exactly how he fell. There's a couple of passages, one in Isaiah, one in Ezekiel, that speak of the kings of Tyre and the kings of Babylon. And, and they're so much attuned to the evil that we see in Satan that they're attributed to him. But, but none of that can be really proven. That doesn't seem to be necessarily the point. So, so here he is, however he got here, however he fell. He shows up at the very beginning of our existence. In the Garden of Eden, this very one Satan. And he is, according to the Hebrew, the adversary of God. He is the one, according to the Greek, the slanderer. And that is to say, he stands in opposition to God. Now, when I say he stands in opposition to God, we mustn't think that he is God's evil twin. We mustn't think that he's equal to God, he isn't. He's created. He's not eternal. He's not self-determining. He's not self-sufficient. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. He's not omnipresent, everywhere present, this Satan. He isn't equal to God. Now, I don't think the Bible ever puts it this way, but, but I suppose if, as I think about it, if I'm having an organizational chart and here's God and here's Satan, across from him would be Michael, the angel, who seems to be the, the head angel in God's forces. So, so he'd be there, but not there. But yet he's wicked evil, you see, this one uh, Satan. He's 
God's adversary, yes, but not God's equal. He rules, but his rule is limited. His power, but his power is limited. Limited, if you will, by God. He can't thwart God's will. In fact, he will always play into God's will. In commenting on Satan as the ruler, the God, the prince of this world, one author put it like this. Satan is the God of this world, not in the sense that he has absolute sovereignty over it, but in the sense that he is served as if he did. Commenting on passage in 1 John chapter 5, the world lies, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, this author put it. We must remember that John is not saying that it lies in Satan's power and not in God's, but that based on the rebelliousness of man, God has given those who are unbelieving over to his power. Thus the Apostle Paul would write that the mind of unbelievers are blinded by the evil one. This isn't Satan's world. The hymn writer was right. It's God's world. Satan, though, is here with limited rule, limited power, all limited, all limited by God, you see. And we see that as we read throughout the scripture. Job's the classic example. He comes to mind every time we think of Satan and his works. But remember, it wasn't Satan that chose Job. It was God that chose Job. And, and, and God, the one who limited what Satan could do in the life of Job. You remember, remember that. Remember King Saul, first king of Israel. The scripture says that after Saul had proven himself to be unfaithful, that God took his spirit off him and put on him an evil spirit. God's sovereign. Peter, you remember. Remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he made this profound, amazing statement, he said to Peter. Satan, literally translated, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. That harkens back to Job. I mean, I, I, Job's situation. How, how, how did Satan make that demand? <laughs> did he knock on the door of heaven and open it up and say, Psst, I want Peter. I want to get him. Did he tell me, Jesus, I don't, we don't know. But Jesus knew that. And he said, this is what's plotted against you. Satan is demanding to sift you. But, 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 but I've interceded on your behalf. I'm more powerful than you. I've interceded on your behalf. You'll go this far, but that's it. The day will come when you'll be restored. And you'll bless your brothers. The classic example, though, really is Jesus himself. We ask the question, who orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, in Luke's gospel, as all this is being played out in real time, the scripture says that Satan entered Judas. And from there... We see what happens. He betrays him. Uh, we, we can sort of hear the echoes of Satan in the crowds. We can see in the institution of the Roman authorities coming into the crucifixion of Jesus. We would say Satan orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus. But of course, Luke then, in speaking through the apostles, 
in Acts chapter 2 has this from the lips of the Apostle Peter. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, this whole plan was God's plan and foreknowledge that is foreordination. He ordained that it would take place through your hands. And we saw their hands influenced by the evil of evils. And then in chapter 4, in the midst of a prayer recorded by Luke in, the gospel, in, the, in this book of Acts, to the lips again of the apostles. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, you see. Satan can only do that which God permits, that which God has ordained that he can do. Martin Luther was a 16th century soundbite waiting to happen. I always um, uh, reluctant to quote Luther because some of this has come down in various ways and sundry fashions. But uh, so I hope this doesn't blow all your theological gaskets. Luther hopes it blows all your theological gaskets. I'm sure. I'm a little more. I gotta live with you. So, but but but. Uh, Luther said this. He said, the devil is God's devil. Now, by that, he didn't mean that they're buds, right? Didn't mean they're on the same page, if you will, in that sense. Didn't mean that he endorsed, oh, Satan, he, you know. He's... But what it meant is that Satan will ultimately reveal, bring about even, in his way, the glory of God. That God will not be thwarted by him. That this isn't a, an equal battle going on. But there's a reason for Satan in this age, the age from creation to the return of Jesus. There's, there's a reason for him. And he'll bring about the very glory of God. So that's helpful, necessary, really, for us to understand when we come into this sense of what, what Paul is saying when he said Satan hindered him and I'm worried about the tempter. You see, in one sense, I realize that as we talk about these things, we're really in the deep end of the pool. It's really difficult for us to, to really fathom all of this. But it is comforting, isn't it? It, it? We do know then that no matter what happens in the life of the believer, just like God has promised, that all things, even hindrances from Satan... Even temptations from the tempter, that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. That is whom he's called to be his, those who believe and those who trust walk with him. So, so we know all things. So, so Satan can't thwart that. In the life of the believer, even though Paul at this moment in time is highlighting, bringing our attention to Satan. The very point of it is that, that even that, 
on in our minds won't thwart, if you will, the plan of God for Paul or the church in Thessalonica. Comfort there, comfort for, for us. Well, when Peter writes that even though we must suffer various trials, various griefs at this particular point in time, but he, but he says, but, 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 but in a sense, don't worry because this will be used by God to actually purify, strengthen your faith. It really will, even if it's from Satan. It's really true, so that's a comfort there. So in the midst of this, even though we feel the desperation of the apostle, we we feel all of that, we do know that he knows that God is sovereign over Satan. But what he's doing here, and this is the helpful thing for us, I think, and for them as well, as they would hear this, is that he's highlighting that there is a battle, a real battle. Because you see, at other times, Paul attributed his inability to get places to God. For instance, in Acts what is it, Acts in chapter 16? You might remember that Paul uh, had, had, had had a missionary journey, as we call it, and, and then he uh, cut back, and then he was going on the second one. When he went on the second one, he did Silas instead of Barnabas. And so he headed out. His plan was to uh, go visit all the churches he had founded in his first missionary journey. Great idea. You can see his heart. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Go back and see the folks. See how they're doing. Uh, preach again. Help them in their faith. We've gotten this far. I want to get them along even more. That sense of Paul. But, but, but notice this. Acts 16 verse 6. And they went. It's Paul and his buddies. They went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia. They attempted to go to Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the question here is, why didn't Paul attribute this to the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of Jesus? Why didn't he say to the church in Thessalonica, I'd come, but, you know, it's not part of God's plan right now. Surely that would have been okay. I mean, if the apostle would have said, I want to come, prayed about it. God said, no, that's all right. Don't go send Timothy. Surely they, have, they, would, have, they would have been okay with that. Or Paul could have probably said something to the effect of, I want to come, but I've been providentially detained, right? But I'm number eight on the runway, you know, and soon I'll be taking off to come to see you. They would have accepted that, but he didn't. He, he gets down and dirty and he says no 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 satan is hindering me how do you know when you love to know is this god or is this satan have you ever asked that question well sadly our text in first thessalonians isn't answering that question we don't know from this how he knew Exactly. We, we, we don't know if he just had a bit of spiritual discernment at the, mo- at the moment or, or, or whether it was hindsight and he looked and said, well, that, that other hindrance, you know, when I couldn't go where I wanted to go but went to Macedonia, that furthered the gospel, this is hindering the gospel. That was his determination and Satan hinders the gospel, so I'm going to put this on Satan. Uh, again, I, I don't think the point here is for us to leave here saying, well, I've got the checklist on how I know whether this is from Satan or from God. The point isn't for us to know that. That's a hard one. The point is, there's a battle. 
Because you see, there's military, if I can put it that way, military imagery using here by, used here by the apostle as he writes. This little word for hindered or stopped is a military expression. It's, it's often used of, 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 of an army that wants to keep their enemy from progressing. And so it refers to going into a place and chopping up the road. Uh, we would say in our day, blowing it up but chopping up the road so the enemy can't get from one place to another. So what he's saying is what's happened here is that someone's come in and chopped up the road. I want you to know, I want you to be aware, church in Thessalonica, this isn't because of my indifference to you. I love you. I want to come. But, but we have an enemy. Remember that. And you know the enemy. And, and, and I'm concerned about the enemy. You see, the greatest danger for someone in a war is to not know they're in a war. You have to fight someone and you can fly in under the radar and they don't even know you're there. That's a great thing for you. And Paul's saying, I want you to know God is sovereign. We could go there if you wanted to. I've preached on that. Paul would say, you know that we've been there, all of those kinds of things. But right now, what I want you to be thinking about in the midst of his sovereignty is that there is a battle going on. I don't want you to miss it. Martin Lloyd-Jones and all of his work on spiritual warfare puts it like this. He says, not to realize that you're in a conflict means only one thing. And that is that you are so hopelessly defeated and so knocked out, as it were, that you do, you do not even know it. You're unconscious. Anyone who's not aware of the fight and a conflict in a spiritual sense is in a drugged and hazardous condition. And so Paul's saying, I could put this variously. But right now, what I want you to understand is there's a battle for your souls. There is one who is the tempter. And this one who is the tempter, this Satan, comes. And as we've said, his slanderous byline, pickup line is, did God really actually say? That's what he used in the Garden of Eden. That's what he uses all over the place. That's what Paul was afraid he was using there. I mean, can you only imagine what was taking place in Thessalonica? Now, in the Garden of Eden, Satan showed up on his own, if you will, as the serpent. He didn't show up on his own, if you will, in Thessalonica. He showed up through the countrymen of the Thessalonians. He showed up. In their friends. Now they didn't know that. In fact, it probably wouldn't take a whole lot of prompting by evil one or the demons or any of that. They were just speaking from their own hearts. This is who they were as those who were blinded by the evil in the world. They, they were just speaking as who they were. And can you only imagine their friends had just become followers of Jesus and, and they didn't get it? Wouldn't they go to their friends and say, What are you doing? Is this Jesus worth this? He's separating you from your culture, from your religion, maybe from family. You've lost your job. You've lost your standing in our city. Is this Jesus? Come on. Could that be really from anyone who would be from God? And this Paul, who is the one who brought you this message, look at him. Everywhere he goes, there's trouble. Everywhere he goes, uh, families are split. 
Friendships are destroyed, if you will. Because one follows this Jesus and one doesn't. And look what happens to the lives of the people where he goes. And in fact, he's, he's, he spends more time either in jail or running from the authorities than anything else. If this Jesus is really the son of God, wouldn't he protect his own ambassadors? Wouldn't he protect this one like Paul? He really can't have the truth of God the way he lives, can he? And not only that, look at the followers of Jesus that, that, that we have now. Aren't they amongst the most poor and the most oppressed? Why do you want to be part of that group? Is that really worth it? Is that really of God? Of course, Paul knew the parable of the sower that Jesus had spoken He knew what the tempter does. He knew that the tempter comes and he snatches away the word that comes for those who don't understand. Don't you know? You know this. Don't you know? That Paul knew people in Thessalonica that he wondered about. Did they really get it? Oh, they said they did. And they they were moving along and they had joined the church, if you will. And and they were part of things and things seemed great. But but don't you know he was wondering? If you're a Sunday school teacher and and, and you have various ones in your class, you know where... You know some for sure believers. I mean, you just know that. But there's always some you go, I wonder, do they really get it? Do they really understand? I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I was thinking, it's just like the tempter to snatch it away. Now, here he wasn't talking about anything that we call our doctrine of eternal security, whether you're, you know, all people who believe are saved and all that kind of thing for all eternity. We believe in what we call the perseverance of the saints. And if a person's really born again, they'll persevere to the end and all that. Paul wasn't getting at that. He's being very practical, very rubber meets the road, very, I'm just worried about you because I know the battle. And if there's any there that don't yet understand, I want to get back before the tempter has a way to snatch that out. So, so I want to get there. And so that's what he's saying. And then he, he knew what went on in this parable, the sower of Jesus. You remember that parable, Jesus said, the sower sows the seed, some on this, 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 this ground that's, that's rough and all of that. And nothing happens. This evil one comes and snatches it up. But, but he talked about seed being sown and people falling away who seemed like they believed because persecution had come. And Paul's looking at Thessalonica and he's saying they're being persecuted. And he's saying, I want to come back and I want to help you so, so that you'll get through, walk through this perseverance. I want to give you this word one more time. Uh, with others, the, the word could be, could, could be lost because of the, the fact that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come in. And people look at their lives and following Jesus in a place where there's oppression because of their faith. And Paul's thinking... Well, the worries of the world. What about my kids? Are they going to be accepted in school now that I'm a follower of Jesus? What about my kids? Their grandparents are ostracizing us but because we're believers in Jesus. What about them? I, I want them to be okay in our culture. I don't want them to be looked upon funny when they walk down the street because they're my kid and I'm a follower of Jesus. So, so maybe I shouldn't be a follower of Jesus for the sake of my kid. Or my kid has all these other things to do, all these other activities. Maybe I'll go do them with my kid as opposed to say, no, we have to do, we're Christians. And so we're in this community, not that community. And, and so how do we, or maybe it's in my job, maybe I've lost my job or maybe I'm not going to get that promotion because I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and so the worries of the world, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to live? And Paul says, I want to get back because I know the tempter. 
See, that's true for us, isn't it? See, when, 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 when we do ministry as the people of God, and when we live our lives sharing Jesus, we should expect two things. One, we should expect people to believe in Jesus. Right? We should expect the power of God as such that people will come to faith. And the second thing we should expect is opposition. The tempter coming at our heels, sometimes in front of us, to try to steal it away. To try to work in such a way that will make things difficult. And of course, for the believers in the midst of that, don't get it out of your head, that God has a plan and he'll strengthen and all that. But Paul, again, right here in the midst of it, you know this with your own children, with your, those people you love. You know this as we minister in the course of the world, that, that we want to provide the means by which people can persevere. That's what Paul is after here. We know this in the context of our own lives. We know the lies of the evil one. We know the lies of the evil one in churches. See what happens in churches very often is that attendance may fall off or people go to other churches or the money may, the giving may fall off. None of those things are happening in our church, by the way, so this isn't autobiographical. But sometimes that happens in the course of churches and churches rethink, well, maybe we have to soften this gospel. And the evil ones, did God really say that the word of God is powerful sufficiently enough that if you preach and teach and live this word of God, that through the power of that word working by his spirit, lives will be changed. And you say, I'm not seeing that. Therefore, maybe we should do something else. Happens in churches. Happens in our own, in our own lives. It happens sometimes with people who have had deep sins in the past sins that they regret. And the evil one comes and says, did God really say people like you are forgiven? For that? Oh, oh, these other people in the church, they're forgiven because look at them. They're all cleaned up and they look nice, but nobody's done what you've done. Therefore, it doesn't really apply to you. And the truth God has really said If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that the blood of Jesus covers all types of, all categories of sins. That's the truth of it. But the evil one comes in, no, not, 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 not in your case. He comes and says, how can you join that group of people for worship after what you did last night? What you looked at on the internet? What? You've done in your past. How can you join that group of people? Because you see, uh, they, they preach against that sin. They, they hold marches against that sin. They, they try to get laws enacted against those kinds of sins. And you've committed them. How, how can you join with that group of people? Well, that's not for you. But God says, no, come to me. All you who are weak and burdened. And I'll give you rest. Just come. In Jesus, to me, he said. But the evil one would have us believe something very, very different from that. If you've been a failure in the eyes of the world, the evil one comes and says, see, you're not good enough for those people. You're not good enough to be in the church. Whereas really, 
the church is for failures. That's the very truth of it. We're all failures. We all haven't. That's why Jesus had to come so he could and would. It's not that. But the evil one would have me think, what about those who are successes in the eyes of the world? Did, did God really say you must be humble? Did God really say you must be generous? Did God really say that your success doesn't give you any higher standard than anyone else in the church? Really did say those things. Even to those who are successes, you see. They're of sinners just like everyone else. Saved only by the grace of God. What is it for you? How does he come to you? I know how he comes to me very often. How does he come to you? Does he come and say, did God really say he loves you? That he'll care for you? That he sees you? That he desires the best for you? That he desires for you to come to him so he may forgive you and bless your life? Did God really say that? And the answer is yes, he did, but there are times when we say, I don't feel that, I don't see that. And the evil one comes Various in a sundry ways. Speak those lies to us. If you're feeling anxious, does evil one come and say, Oh, did God really say don't be anxious for anything? Look at you, you're being anxious. God really say don't, don't worry because if, if you look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air uh, and you see how he cares for them, don't you know you're more valuable uh, than, than, than they are to him? Obviously not. But God really did say that. All these ways, the evil one comes to us. How does he come? How does he come to you? You can rest assured that as we live in such a way that shows the kindness, the grace, the forgiveness, the glory of Jesus, that people will come to faith and that there will be opposition and the evil one will come against us and will come against those who believe. Now, Paul wanted to go to them. Why? Well, he loved them, no doubt. He wanted to go to them. But he also wanted to go to them because Satan targets our faith by this, by trying to destroy the very word of God. And so Paul says to them in, in, verse, in verse 2 of chapter 3, for instance, he said, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, um, <clears throat> in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort or encourage you in your faith. He wants to send people so they would be encouraged in their faith. Then in... Verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, I sent to learn about your faith. I'm concerned about your faith. That's what Satan will target. And then in verse 10 in chapter 3, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your, in your faith. You see, the spiritual weapon against the onslaught of Satan is the word of God coming through the people of God. Paul wanted to go back there. And what was Paul going to do? He wasn't going to go back there on his horse and ride up to the prison and free everybody. Right? That wasn't it. He wasn't come with a bunch of food and said, here, I might have. But but, but that wasn't his point. His point was he was going to come with the word of God. Why? Because this word, you need to hear this word. If you're only hearing this other word from the opposition and there's nobody there mature enough in order to give you this word because you're new in your faith, I'm going to come and I'm going to give you this word. Why? Because this word will enable you to persevere. It's more powerful than that word. It'll counteract that word. And if you're really a believer in Jesus, you'll take hold of this. 
And then I can leave and go, whew. They're good. They'll make it. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we're to encourage one another in the word of God as long as it's called today so that none of us would have a cold, hard, unbelieving heart. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Now, I know that preachers for years have used that to con people into coming to church every Sunday. Well, you can use it for that. But it's more than that. It's what we call Bible fellowship. It's what we call coming together with other fellows who are in the same ship and talking about the Bible. Right? That's what it is. And that's what we do, you see. And so when the evil one comes with lies and slander to oppose the word of God, the spiritual weapon against that, is the word of God delivered from, spoken by, read through, talked about with other believers. That puts on the armor of God, you see. I read, and I'll end, I read from Ephesians 6 earlier, this passage we're familiar with about the armor of God, and we take that in various ways, but the point of it is what we need to stand before the evil one, what they needed in Thessalonica, what Paul would bring to them with this word, was that they needed truth, the belt of truth. What they needed was the breastplate of righteousness to know they're righteous in Christ. What they needed was the gospel because that would bring peace. What they needed in this situation was faith because that would extinguish these lies. What they needed was the helmet of salvation, the knowledge of how one is saved through Jesus and that believers are saved in Jesus and he didn't worry about these lies. And then he said, you must take up this word of God praying. And he said, pray for all the saints, that is to say, it's all of us together. We need each other. Isolation is the enemy's tool. Paul says, I've got to come. Somebody's got to come. And I'll come and I'll come with this word of God. And it's more powerful than the word of the enemy. Oh, Satan hindered us. And now he's using that hindrance to harm your faith because you think I don't care. And you think God doesn't care. But that isn't it at all. Timothy will come. I'll come. Satan will be overcome. And your faith will be strong. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for me, for us, I pray that you would enable us to sit under the word of God. That you would enable us to listen to others speak of it. And that you will enable us to speak of it in the company of your people, one to one, Five to five, a hundred to a hundred, a thousand to a thousand. And that this word of God would counteract every temptation of the tempter. That we may persevere. And this we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of grace at a glance off to your left. I see Ben out there. Ben will be off to the right, so go and listen to his report as well concerning his work at K-State. Please receive this. This is God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. It's only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and tongue him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior. For the holy judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life He brought, my love He owns. I have no Forever to be whole. You are dismissed.